All right, we are live, folks. As criticisms of ESG continue to be thrust into the national spotlight, more and more states are rallying against this insidious scheme. We have some great updates for you all on this fight. Also, a lot more attention is being paid to increasingly bizarre solutions to climate change, including geoengineering and so-called 15-minute cities. We're going to be talking about all this and more in episode 386 of the In the Tank podcast. Welcome to the Tank Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Got a small audience today. I think there is a rumor going around that our show is going to be preempted by the uh, 15th International Conference on Climate Change currently ongoing in Orlando, Florida, or at least it's starting tonight. I don't think it's actually officially started yet, but that's a lie. Those are fake news, false rumors. We are here. We are always here. Never miss an episode in the Tank Podcast coming at you live from uh you know northern illinois so joining me today i've got a very small crew very small crew folks i've got chris talgo editorial uh director i got it right at the heartland <laughs> institute how are you doing today good sir doing good and donnie notice we're uh you know creeping up here on 400 episodes so man wow <laughs> that's right just a few months away from wow that. time flies yeah, no doubt. No doubt about that at all. Um, so, yeah, I see some comments uh, already, and, and I think we might have a little bit more of an interactive show than usual because it is just Chris and I. And when I say that it's just Chris and I, I mean very specifically that. It's just Chris <laughs> and I. We don't even have Andy behind the scenes. So if it's a little uh, wonky at times, if I'm talking and showing Chris or vice versa, that's because I'm trying to handle all of this while hosting the show. But that's the type of dedication that you get from the in the tank podcast everybody um so like i mentioned uh actually you know what first i gotta do that message that i say at the beginning of every episode that uh you can join us if you're an audio only listener that's catching the show on a friday you can join us a day earlier on thursdays at noon central time where we are streaming on facebook and twitter and youtube and rumble you can join the conversation throw your comments and questions in the stream maybe we'll show your comments on the screen maybe we'll address your questions on the fly who knows we'll see also, you can really help us out by just doing a handful of things, hitting that like button, hitting that subscribe button, sharing this content, or even leaving a comment underneath this video all helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. So like I mentioned, Chris, International Conference on Climate Change, Heartland's big events. It's probably bigger than our benefit dinner. It's the, probably the biggest event that we throw. Uh, it, it, there's like 50 speakers, panels that span across multiple days. They've got representatives and senators uh, uh, speaking at this. So it's a it's a big to do, and it starts tonight. Uh, there's like a, a, a an evening thing, and then the real conference really gets going Thursday and Friday. So. Chris is back at the office holding down the fort, and uh, you know we are bringing you in the Tank Podcast as we always do. Jim is not here; he is over at the conference. He is uh, the ringleader of that entire thing. Andy is helping out doing AV down there. He's more needed there than he is for this podcast, so I get it. And Justin is uh, currently unavailable because in uh, where he lives, they got one inch of snow, and that closed <laughs> down everything. So that's that's the situation, everybody. Um, so ICC, usually Jim starts off the show talking about, uh, ICC and how it's, uh, X days away, X weeks away and how you should get your tickets and hotel and fly down there and all of this stuff. It's too late for that folks, unless you're in the area, I guess you could still drive by and get scalping tickets or something like that. But for those that still want to witness the conference in all its glory, you can just by going to climateconference.heartland.org. You can click through. There's a live stream button, and you can find all of the different panels. Um, or you can go to heartland.org. Surely there's a button at the top there where you can click on to get to that website and find all of the, the live streams for the channels. But 
there's a couple of panels in here that I am particularly interested in. Like, like I said, it's pretty stacked. Um, I, I'm pretty interested in the Alex Epstein stuff. Uh, he f- was very popular for writing the moral case for fossil fuels. He just recently wrote a book called Fossil Future. I think he's a great communicator on these issues, and it's a great guest to have at the conference. Uh, Judith Curry is another impressive get for the conference. That's a guest that you don't want to miss. Uh, in fact, she was the subject of that video that got canceled by YouTube and shut down and it was moved over to rumble. And we got more views on rumble than we ever had before. That's, that's Judith Curry. She's going to be a uh, part of a panel or some speech there. And, and uh, so I don't want to miss that one as well. And uh, I, I don't even know if uh, you people know that are listening to this, but I am also the graphic designer at the Heartland Institute. So I personally laid out the program for this conference. And let me tell you, there are like 50 speakers that I had to include bios of like half of the booklet that I made the program is speakers and they have, it's pretty stacked. Richard Lisden has an insane resume. Willie soon. There's a ton of experts there talking about a ton of different topics. In fact, you can go to climateconference.heartland.org and find the schedule of events and just pick out a couple that you, that uh, stand out to you that are, uh, that are of interest to you and make sure to tune into that. So um, that is happening. Like I said, starting Two nights, but the most of the conference is on Friday and Saturday. Chris, any thoughts on uh, on the conference, International Conference on Climate Change? How upset are you that you weren't invited to go? Mm. Do you hold any grudges, any resentment? Not yet. Uh, I, I'm actually most uh, excited to uh, see what uh, Senator Ron Johnson has to say about this. Uh, he just won a really hard-fought uh, campaign campaign. Uh, for another six years as Senator from Wisconsin. And he is one of the, um, I just say most honest, uh, and, uh, bravest, uh, senators, uh, that I've, I've, you know, seen in a, you know, very long time. So he tells it like it is, whether it's, you know, climate change or whether it's Hunter Biden or whether it's, you know, the, you know, insane economy. I mean, he just, he's, he's a Frank person. I'm looking forward to watching his speech and uh, representative, uh, Lowen Burp, Lauren Bobert as well. Uh, she actually knows a lot about uh, natural gas industry. Her husband has been working in natural gas industry. So these people, unlike, you know, uh, Chuck Schumer and uh, AOC and their ilk actually know what they're talking about when it comes to this stuff. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to what they have to say. Uh, yeah, we got a question in here. Are you guys live streaming tonight? Um, I'm assuming that's in, in regards to the conference. I am not entirely sure of that. I think what's listed in the program is like like a meet and greet uh, of the attendees with speakers. And maybe there's a part of that that is actually like a formal speech that will be broadcast. I um, think there might be a keynote tonight, I think, but I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah you, you have to go in and click on the schedule. But if there's anything of note going on that's not some private conversation type of thing, it's going to be live streamed. So there's a good chance that it will be live streamed. But uh, all right. All right. Yeah, that's uh, that is going on. Like I said, kind of the big the big to do for the Heartland Institute every year is this big conference. So uh, Jim will likely be back next week. So expect his gym rats then. But um, I think we should get to the topics at hand. What do you think, Chris? I agree. But but I, I do think that, you know, if these uh, you know viewers want to go and check out any of the the uh, topics uh, at ICC 15, definitely go and, and you know, and uh, look at the live stream because there's going to be some awesome uh, discussions yeah. and, and, and some really good debates, too. So, right, right. Yeah. You know, I'm not one to to fly and travel all over the place. I'm very content with just staying, you know, in my in the four walls of my house here. Did but I- after the uh, uh, the ice storm that we got last night, where there was ice everywhere and there was power going out all over the place, I was thinking, yeah, they're probably living it up in Orlando right now. It's probably not nearly as bad as it is up here. But uh, did you lose power real quick? I didn't lose power, but I actually uh, I, I went uh, downtown last night for uh, you know basketball game, and and one of the, one of the things that uh, what kind of shocked me was it was me and my brother, and uh, we stopped at a, a burger place in Evanston that you know we used to go to for, for a long time, and they were closed because of the ice storm, which just blew my mind. Oh wow. wow! They were closed in anticipation of the ice storm, which never really even like you know happened. So. Just, I, I think that's actually more of a reflection on like the, you know, like the American labor market, uh, if, <laughs> yeah, if anything, right. because I, I assume that, uh, you know, the workers probably just felt like, uh, you know, just not feeling work uh, going to work today. So, you know, 
Sure. Uh, we got a question here. It says, hey, guys, will the conference be recorded as well as live streamed? I believe the answer to that is yes. Uh, once it's mm-hmm. live streamed, it'll probably be up there as one giant stream. And for the sake of like complexity, they just keep the stream going all day long. Uh, so, for instance, like the main ballroom will have a breakfast keynote. And then the, the breakout rooms will have their own uh, sections for a few hours. Then they'll have in that main ballroom the lunch keynote. And then it'll go back to the breakout centers. Uh, and then there's the, the the dinner keynote. But that stream will be running that entire time. So if you go and find that stream, there might be several hour chunks where it's just kind of like filler stuff in between the actual panels and, and vice versa with the breakout panels. But once so that will be up. But then once everyone's back into the office and everything, I'm sure that they'll have Andy break up the panels into individual clips and have them posted individually. So you can get it all at once, kind of in that messy, one giant long live stream or the individual panels probably in the next week or so. Um, all right, let's get to it. We, we spent enough time here. Hmm. I will say, because it's just Chris and I, I, I was going to warn that this could be a shorter episode. But since we're already at 11 minutes, I'm not so sure that's going to be the case. <laughs> So, all right, let's get to the main topic. I want to talk about the ongoing anti-ESG movement that has been seemingly picking up more and more momentum uh, as we've been covering it over the past, what, 12 months or something like that. And apologies for those constant listeners that have to hear me talk about this again, but this is an important piece of context to the story, so I always like to bring it up. And that is when Justin and I uh, first started to expose just how widespread and powerful the concept of ESG was, we struggled to kind of figure out what to do about it. <laughs> like we were like, this is this is a terrible thing. It's a, so insidious and powerful. And what do we do about it? I, I don't know. I don't know. And when we started working with Glenn Beck on the book, The Great Reset, um, he he was stumped too. Uh, we were all stumped. We were like, you know, what are we going to put in this in the in the conclusion when we talk about the solutions to this problem and we were we just didn't really know but then uh, you know we we you know we have a good we have a good conclusion for those that didn't read the book but uh when the book took off like a rocket and the public interest that was generated from it uh, uh started to spread like wildfire we were shocked we were blown away by the amount of interest that state legislators across uh, throughout the country uh um had to do something about this and thankfully because we had glenn beck's giant microphone and our place here at the heartland institute we were able to educate legislators across the country about the insidious nature of esg like i said the momentum is caught on and we are seeing a wave of anti-esg legislation proposals action going across the country and it's unbelievable um, so what we have seen here, I've got a, I've, I've got a, a graphic here. Now this isn't completely up to date and it's not uh, comprehensive, but it shows just how much action is happening. So for the audio only listeners, I have a, uh, a map of the United States up here and the vast majority of states are either colored blue or teal. And blue is where action is actually happening in the states. Now, that could be small things like little adjustments by the treasurer to do A, B, and C. Or it could be uh, bigger proposals like complete defunding of pension systems or or, uh, stuff like that that, that's happened in states like Louisiana. Um, And then the other half of the states that are colored are in teal. And those are states that are considering action or proposals are in place or there have some movement, but it hasn't generated uh, action quite yet. So it's it's pretty unbelievable. Uh, last week, we, we, we covered the announcement by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis about the proposed anti-ESG bill, um, that it had the potential to be stronger than anything that we've seen so far when it comes to anti-ESG legislation. We, we talked about that for probably 25 minutes in the last uh, episode. So I asked Justin, um, you know, all right, so the bill has been released. We actually can see the legislation. Is it as good as what we were hoping for? And his answer was very plainly, yes. Yes, it was. Uh, We weren't being led to believe that this was something bigger than what what it was. We actually see the legislation. It is, it has those teeth in it. It, it, if passed, it will be the best piece of anti-ESG legislation that's been passed in the state. Um, and that is incredible news for a whole bunch of different reasons that we'll get into. But 
Chris, as, as somebody that has been part of this conversation about ESG and all of that, uh, basically since the beginning when, when Justin and I started talking about it, uh, what, what did you ever imagine that this campaign to derail ESG would have spread so far and wide? Well, no. And, you know, actually, I didn't think that ESG would catch on like wildfire because I remember a couple of years ago when you and Justin first brought this to my attention and you brought it up, you know, in line with the Great Reset and Modern Monetary Theory. And I actually thought, oh, ESG, that's kind of like a little like side thing. It's not that big of a deal. However, ESG has, I think, proven in the past three years to be one of the instruments uh, that, you know, the the left is using and you know, actually we should say like the global left to implement, you know, their, uh, you know, d designs for, you know, maximum control and, of course, to enrich themselves because they are the ones who are uh, profiting and benefiting from all the, uh, you know, crony capitalism that is completely, uh, you know, uh, you know, parcel to uh, ESG. So there's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of power to be uh, had and a lot of uh, control that they are desperate to, uh, you know, take uh, over over the people. But uh, I'm 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 shocked at how quickly uh, the issue has uh, resonated with uh, ordinary people. And also a lot of um, I would just, you know, call them like ordinary, uh, you know, like like bankers and such like, you know, a lot of a lot of the, the the big banks and a lot of the Black Rocks and a lot of the, you know, huge wealth funds. They love this stuff. But a lot of the, uh, you know, like average, you know, uh, smaller bank and, uh, you know, smaller uh, asset management companies, they want nothing to do with this. So I, right. I'm, I'm so glad that this is, you know, uh, really, uh, you know, front and center in the uh, societal discourse. Yeah, we're gonna have to like seriously write a paper on this because it was it was a very interesting thing because this was a topic that people on the right talked about even before Justin and I really caught on to this, but it was kind of just written off as just like ah, it's just bad investment. You know, if people want to pursue this, they can, but it's just a bad investment. It's gonna end up losing them money, and then that was kind of the end of the story. So I think like you know, for people, it just didn't rise to that level to be taken serious. So then once, you know, we, we kind of showed the full scope and, and, and uh, potential of this system and it, and it did catch on, we thought, all right, great. Like, you know, we, we've got some uh, legislators in a handful of states that are interested in like this is going to this is going to be great. This is going to spread like wildfire. Right. And then it didn't. And we started hitting these roadblocks of traditionally Republican conservative states legislators saying like, oh, isn't this just free market? You know, I, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to put restrictions on this. This is just free market and voluntary interaction and all of that. And it was quite a roadblock. We thought we were going to be preaching to the choir when we talked to, you know, uh, uh, tried to educate some of these lawmakers and everything. And we uh, were met with resistance that we weren't expecting. So then there was a whole nother period of time of like, how do we, uh, um, you know, explain that this is not part of the free market and that this is very insidious and that this will be used to control all these different things. And then like, finally, we start breaking through now. So this is like the second wave of stuff that's going on. And it's uh, it's pretty amazing. I was talking to Justin yesterday about this. And he had written a piece about, uh, you know, we, we talked about the Ron DeSantis proposal. He wrote some pieces. I think one just got published in Fox News talking about the, the proposal, the legislation out of Florida and how great it is. But he was talking to me about some communications that he's had with various people that are on the on the ground level when it comes to all of this. And we might be on the precipice of a uh, of, of just like a landslide of this type of stuff. And I, I don't want to get anyone's hopes up too much, but. He was talking about how there's a couple of other states out there. I think one is Kansas and one is Nebraska. And uh, they are also uh, they, they have introduced legislation that is on par with Florida's legislation. And, and this is a little wonky. Uh, and forgive me if I'm getting a little bit too in the weeds. But the state legislative pro um, timelines, the when they're actually like in session, it varies greatly depending on what state you're in, right? Mm -hmm. Some legislative mm -hmm. sessions only last a handful of months. Others are a lot longer. Some happen every other year. It's a whole weird patchwork of, of systems they got going on there. In Florida, apparently they have a longer legislative session than your average state. So this bill, even though it was proposed with a lot of enthusiasm by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the leaders of the House and Senate down there, 
uh, a lot of enthusiasm behind it, but it still might take a while for it to pass through just because their session is longer and there's no like immediate need to get this hammered through as fast as possible. Apparently that is not the case in Nebraska and Kansas. So it's possible that Kansas or Nebraska could beat Florida to the punch in, in releasing kind of the first large scale anti ESG legislation, which would be fantastic. In fact, I, I was saying like, Oh yeah, we should just like put a bug in their ear. Like, yeah, you know, if you want to beat Ron DeSantis, you better get this passed now type of thing. But like, if that happens, we can see a cascading effect that, uh, you know, you get like a one, two, three punch of Kansas, Nebraska, then Florida all do it. And there'll be a momentum that can get some of these teal states to finally pull the trigger or even some of these blue states on this map to bulken up their anti ESG stuff. So that that's kind of where we're sitting right now. We're just kind of like timidly waiting for the dam to break and all this anti ESG stuff to flow across the country. And I. I on certain days, I'm an optimist. Certain days, I'm a pessimist. But right now, I'm feeling very optimistic about this anti-ESG stuff. Chris, any thoughts about uh, any of the ramblings that I just uh, spewed over the over the <laughs> over the podcast? Yeah, of course. Uh, this is a you know very important issue, and I think one of the reasons why it's actually uh, gaining traction with you know most Americans and with uh, you know politicians, especially in red states, is because actually those uh, ESG funds are underperforming. So they're actually not they're not making the money that, the you know, people who started them thought that they would make. There's been a bunch of studies and I've been uh, tracking this. And over the past few years, the uh, ESG funds, especially in uh, BlackRock's portfolio, are underperforming, you know, their uh, you know, their their counterparts, you know, across the board. So this is not profitable. It's crony capitalism. It's enriching a few. And it's making, you know, uh, the the many, you know, poor and, uh, you know, miserable. This 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 ESG stuff is the entire reason why, you know, people are, uh, you know, paying sky high energy bills. It's why are, you know, not completely solely why, but one of the main reasons why, uh, you know, gas prices are through the roof, why natural gas is through the roof, why uh, home heating bills, because the ESG is saying, hey, you know what, uh, in, in the future, we want to shift investment from fossil fuels towards, you know, these green energy things, which, oh, just so happen to, uh, you know, benefit uh, Democratic donors in droves, because those are the people who are pushing all this stuff. So th th there's that side of it. But then there's also the and I think we spend so much time on the E and we actually forget about the S and the G or we kind of overlook it and, and ignore it. The S and the G are so important, too, because the, the social and the governance standards are uh, basically, you know, tearing apart, you know, uh, meritocracy and saying it doesn't matter if you are, um, uh, you know, uh, the right person for the job. All that matters is if you're the uh, the the right, you know, minority, uh, you know, for the for the job or if your board has, you know, not enough women or whatever. So, you know, these companies are not looking to say, how can we maximize our shareholder value? Uh, value? How can we uh, make sure that we are investing in our futures? Because now they're so busy making sure that they're adhering to all these ESG, uh, you know, uh, rules and stipulations that it's gumming up the system. And I'm not saying that ESG is the entire reason why the United States, you know, economy is, you know, cratering and just, you know, completely like dysfunctional, but it's putting a giant, you know, wrench in the machine. Right. And, 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 you know, I think that people are starting to like understand this because it was, it was floated originally as, oh, this is all about, you know, green energy. This is all about, you know, the, the, the transition from, you know, carbon-based energy to, uh, you know, beautiful windmills and, you know, <laughs> awesome, uh, you know, solar panels. But the people are understanding that. And, and, and you know, the electric car, uh, you know, revolution is not catching on like right. they, uh, you know, want it to. So they're, they're you know, resorting to, to coercion and uh, force. And, you know, ESG is coercion and force. Yeah. Um, sorry, this is totally a tangent. But we have some time to go on tangents now that we only have two people on the show. But uh, you mentioned the electric car revolution not taking off. I don't think we talked about that Super Bowl commercial. Where it was mm. like the I forget what company it was, but it would the entire Dodge. I think it was Dodge. I think. Okay, yeah, it it was the one where it was like people are are concerned about. Um, uh, it was like 
it was like they were trying to make an allusion to like uh, erectile dysfunction or something right. like that. Right. That people are co- worried that their electric car isn't going to get them as far as they need to go and all of this stuff. And like at first, I was like, oh, geez, you know, people that are not driving electric cars, were they d- trying to say that they're impotent or something like that? But I was like, at the end of the commercial, I was like, are they just taking a dig at every other electric car as being like, you know, not as good as getting you where you need to go. And I just thought that was actually kind of an indictment of the entire industry. Like right, everything right, else right. is, you know, so I don't know. Like I said, it was just when, when I was watching it, I thought, wow, this is a, uh, a, a commercial against the electric right. car in general. But then they actually said, no, 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 no. Their, their electric cars don't have enough range, but ours do. So, well, yes, but it was, yeah. but it was as if this is the first one, all the other ones. Sucked. Right. Right. This is the so um but yeah so just to kind of cap off what you were saying there i think that ron DeSantis in his press conference when he originally proposed this legislation uh, i think he hit the messaging the nail right on the head where he was saying that they're using this esg structure to basically push through an agenda that they would not be able to accomplish through the traditional legislative process exactly and I, i think that is that is that encapsulates all of it whether it's the e whether it's the s whether it's the g it's like do you want to do these things? Great. Pass a bill. Oh, you can't. So you're going to devise this entire plan to ram all this uh, down our throats without consent. No, that's not going to happen. We're going to stop that. So uh, I think, I think having Ron DeSantis as a potential big time messenger of this anti ESG message is just a, a massive get in this fight against this insidious plot. I think Ron DeSantis is a good figurehead because he's really good at communicating to the people, you know, like like, like how this is going to impact them. Uh, I remember when it was a bunch of uh, state attorneys uh, general came out and, uh, you know, started writing like letters to BlackRock and Larry Fink. And I remember they they just they were driving point the home that you just said, hey, Larry, if you, you know, like in J.P. Morgan and Bank of America and Brian Moynihan and all you people, if you really want to do this, don't do it, uh, you know, behind people's backs and don't do it, you know, uh, you know, in, 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 you know, in, in the night when it's, you know, when it's not out in the open, it's not transparent. Uh-huh. Go, go and, and, and make your case to the people, but they can't because they know that it's unpopular and they know that the people are against it. So what do they try to do? They try to do their backroom deals and their, you know, smoke filled room, you know, uh, right. negotiations. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, I was, I had this question originally planned to ask Justin on air. Uh, but then when he called me to bail on the podcast, I asked him then, and I thought, you know what, if you give me a good answer, I'll relay it on the, on the show. And I thought it was a good answer. So I asked him, what is the next step in all of this? Let's paint the rosiest scenarios. This legislation passes in Kansas. It passes in Nebraska. It passes in Florida. And then all the other states follow suit. Texas, every, you know, Indiana, all the other red states follow suit and pass the same type of legislation. Obviously, it's kind of probably wishful thinking that it's going to happen in some, you know, blue state or. Well, yeah, California, California, New York and Illinois are never going to do that. Are you kidding? No, no, of course not. Right. So what happens next? Like, what's the next step if we see, you know, the majority of red states do this? What happens next? So. He seemingly had an answer planned. I was a little suspicious of that, but uh, he said that this uh, um, would basically resemble the the same strategy that was behind the whole right to try uh, campaign. So with right mm-hmm. to try and the biggest proponents of that was, I think, like the Goldwater Institute out of New, yeah, Bre- yes. New Mexico, Arizona, Arizona. somewhere Arizona. over there. Arizona. Um, yeah. So their entire strategy was was to. Uh, get states. There was working on a state by state level to get states to pass right to try legislation. They were successful in doing that in a number of states, um, but they 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 either knew or changed their strategy at some point uh, when they realized that this complex patchwork of states having different regulations in regards to uh, um, right to try was kind of unsustainable. And any industry that's affected by this right to try legislation will now have to have all these different individual things in different states and it'll all be different. And it's a super messy process. But the real plan, the genius of the plan was that this all of this passing in different states created a momentum for a federal level right to try legislation that was eventually passed by Donald Trump. 
So all of this work in the, in the state level was great, and I'm sure it did some fantastic stuff, but it built this momentum that eventually got to an inflection point where it was possible on a federal level, and it happened. And, and Donald Trump signed it into law, and we had a federal right-to-try law. So um, this apparently is part of the goal when, it, when we're talking about all this anti-ESG stuff at a state-by-state -state level. Yes, it would be great if we had Florida to do it. Yes, it would be great if we have Kansas to do it. But we are, and, and it is more effective. And if Justin was here, he can explain how just like the state level pass, uh, passing these things is actually more effective than the right to try. Uh, but if this all builds to a inflection point where it's being talked at a federal level, and we get somebody in office uh, that is, uh, um, you know, sympathetic to passing some type of legislation like this at a federal level, then that is the ultimate goal. That is the the most uh, effective thing that could possibly result from this anti ESG campaign. Chris, were you going to say something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I see what Justin's saying there, but I don't think it's an exact apples to apples comparison. Because right to try, I think, is just fundamentally popular with most Americans, whether you're liberal or whether you're a conservative, because it's saying, hey, if you're, you know, on death's door, you should have the right to try a, med a medication or, a, you know, procedure that could potentially save your life. I think that that is just like across the board supported. However, I don't think that, you know, your your liberals in, uh, you know, Beverly Hills and in New York City and in, you know, uh, you know, downtown Chicago are going to say, yeah, I think I will, you know, uh, you know, put my tail between my legs and uh, give in to the, you know, to the other side on this ESG thing. I, I just I just don't see that happening. And uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I think, you know, the laboratories are, you know, federalism is a laboratories uh, of democracy. And I just wonder if, if that would ever even uh, pass, you know, uh, you know, in the Senate. I, I doubt you'd ever get 60 votes for it. I, I just I, I don't know. I yeah, mean, well, there, there was uh, while Trump was president, um, he did pass. Well, no, he didn't pass a law. He's like he he was an executive order. I think executive order uh, was a fair access law. Or fair access, but that can just be undone by the next administration, right? But it does show that this type of thing can have an effect, can be done at a federal level. And yes, it, that's not the ideal pathway for this for some actual long staining. Uh, anti-ESG type of movement because as soon as like literally like the first thing that Joe Biden did when he became president was undo that rule, right which I think is a tall tale sign that uh, ES that uh, Joe Biden is fully on board with the great reset well I mean ESG. of course he is of course it was the first thing he did but uh, so yeah the the but you know let, let's say you know we get a wave of all of the stuff maybe it's kicked off by Ron DeSantis Florida bill and all of that and let's just say you know i don't want to get into a political debate here but let's just say Ron DeSantis becomes the next president and this is seen as some big successful thing that he did is it not impossible that he would pursue as a, as a main platform of his new administration some comprehensive federal level anti ESG legislation i, I think, think that I, would be I, Best case I scenario. absolutely think he would pursue it, but I don't think that it would pass in Congress because I don't okay, think that. Mr. Well, no, I'm just, I'm just, over here. I'm just, I'm just, I being, wanted to be optimistic. I'm being, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to be a realist here. I mean, uh, you know, our, our Congress is completely dysfunctional and uh, passing, you know, bipartisan legislation and something as like, a, that's a hot button issue as this. I just think like, wow, that's probably not going to happen. But I, I think that this is actually kind of similar to how states are uh, dealing with uh, income taxes. You've got Florida and you got Texas with no income tax and you've got California with a really high income tax. So if California wants to go down the ESG rabbit hole, that's fine. It's going to just screw their economy more. It's going to cause more people to leave California, especially corporations, I would assume, who are already leaving California for free states like Texas and Florida. So I think all it's going to do is actually just exaggerate and exacerbate the, uh, you know, political, economic, cultural uh, division that is so inherent right now in our country. And Donnie, it's so funny because when you put that map up right there, look at it. I mean, that, that looks like the Electoral College map to some degree. You know, you've got you've got I mean, doesn't it? You've got the coast, you know, California, Oregon and Washington. Of course, they would never touch the ASG, you know, legislation with 10 foot pole. And you got the same thing going on uh, across the East Coast. And then, of course, Illinois and, you know, a couple other liberal states like Colorado, and New Mexico. I mean, I think that this this demonstrates 
uh, you know, part of our larger, uh, you know, like political, cultural, like economic, uh, you know, like like battle that's being waged at the federal level. But I don't think you can wage it at the federal level. I think it has to be waged at uh, the state level. And I and I would hope that eventually, as California and uh, New York and uh, New Jersey and Connecticut and you know Illinois, I hate to say it, my home state, uh, as they just you know just deteriorate further and further and further. I think that it's just going to be impossible for them to not make a change, you know, uh, just just based on the fact that they are not going to be able to pay their bills. I mean, Illinois has already got, you know, such a, you know, terrible uh, budget shortfall. This is this is just gonna make it worse. So I do I do want to end this. Uh, This whole section was supposed Mm -hmm. to be a very optimistic look at all this great (laughs) progress that's happening. So I do want to leave it on a on a happy note. But I do see this comment from Gary saying Chris is right. Congress is filled with people who benefit from ESG. Now, I'm not going to dispute that because we have seen in uh, just at a state level. That there was, uh, I don't know how specific I can be or something, but uh, there was a state that seemed to be a slam dunk when it came to doing some anti-ESG stuff. And it seemed like all the votes were all lined up so that we can get this thing passed and all of this, whatever. Um, And then all of a sudden, some charter flight comes in with a whole bunch of banking lobbyists and suddenly the votes weren't there. So I can only imagine if that's happening at a smaller state, um, that 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 same kind of thing happening at the federal level is probably a hundred times as bad. So yeah, it'd be quite a quite a feat. But yeah, we'll Donnie, just just you know one one more comment on this because I think that you just brought up something that's really important. This is Wall Street versus Main Street, and yeah. Vivek Ramaswamy, who just uh, you know announced that he's going to run for president in twenty twenty four. And I, I you know I I wish him all the best. I think he's a really smart guy, and I think he's got you know policies that are really uh, you know important. Um, but he 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 wrote a book called Woke Inc. It was his first book. It was a couple of years ago. I read it, and what he uh, he made the argument that this whole ESG, this whole like wokeness thing, it really actually started after the 2008 financial crisis because the big banks were you know being put under the microscope and you know we had if you remember uh you know uh was occupy wall street and you know like the 99% versus the 1%. So what did the banks and all the big financial like black rocks do? They just said, "Oh, cr- well what are we going to do?" Okay, well we'll just go on this woke, you know, bandwagon to try to, you know, pretend for the people that hey, we're we're you know like like we're you know part of your, you know, uh your uh you know uh, agenda. And he he makes the argument that that was a really smart thing to do and that they really hoodwinked most of the people and they have gotten away with it to this day because all the angst that was, uh, you know, geared toward the big banks for their, you know, insane, uh, you know, uh, lending, you know, and all that stuff that led to the, you know, the housing bubble and blah, 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 that they've actually gotten away with this scot-free because now they are pretending that they are the good guys. And yeah, I, th- you know, I think that that is a really interesting, uh, uh, you know, point that most people don't actually. Uh, yeah, you got to you got to bring that up to Justin consider. next time you talk to him, because I think he has a very similar theory about all of that without mm-hmm. any reading of, uh, of Vivek Ramaswamy's book. So bring that up. To and, 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 you know, I don't want to belabor this, but Vivek Ramaswamy, he came from uh, the investment world and he saw it happening before his very eyes in 2008, 2009. And it just was so off putting to him that he that's why he, you know, created strive asset management mm. completely counter to the whole woke investing thing because he's saying this is all a scam this right. is all a complete and utter scam and he's totally right all right so um <clears throat> we're already we're already going long on this segment i knew this wasn't yeah. going to be a short episode <laughs> so let's let's move on um so we know that esg is being promoted in part to combat climate change that's essentially the e in esg Uh, But there are a bunch of other proposals out there that seemingly seek to combat uh, uh, climate change. So originally I was going to save this part for last, but after reading some related articles, I bumped it up a notch in our lineup of topics to talk about. And I am talking about so-called 15-minute cities. So this story is getting a little bit more attention lately because there was a large protest over these so-called 15-minute cities in Oxford, England, after the city council proposed a plan involving a traffic filter system that would use license plate reading cameras to track people's movements in and around the city. 
So according to advocates of the plan, the 15-minute neighborhoods proposal aims to ensure that every resident has all the essential shops, healthcare, parks, all within a 15-minute walk of their home. They try to uh, they aim to support and add services, not restrict them. So, um, so Chris, uh, this 15-minute thing—I think we touched on this recently uh, when we were talking about some of the kind of futurist, crazy ideas for the smart cities and all of this—and we touched on this 15-minute thing. But um, it seems like there's a rash of articles going around saying that uh, this is all just conspiracy theory. And you know what? Like these 15 minute cities, it's nothing to fret about. You're just getting these crazy podcasters like Chris and Donald (laughs) talking about this crazy stuff. And that's causing you all to lose your minds over these 15 minute cities. So I want to help quell your fear, Chris, because I know that you are uh, subject to some of these crazy lunatic ravings of people like Jim Lakely and myself. So I'm going to quell your fears by, by talking about uh, the way that this uh, topic is discussed by places like slate magazine. So slate magazine, my my favorite. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, It's a, it's probably as leftist as you could possibly get uh, when it comes to publications. So uh, this, this article, and I would, if I had a producer, I'd have you, I'd have him pull it up for you, but I'm not going to try to do that while talking. But there's a Slate article titled 15 Minutes of Blame, how a wonky city planning concept went from PowerPoint presentations to a global right-wing conspiracy theory. So you know that this has got all of the most accurate information in this completely objective, non-biased article. So let's give this article the benefit of the doubt. So essentially, the first 80% of this article consists of Crazy conspiracy theorists are losing it again. These 15-minute cities are nothing more than a city planning initiative to make sure that everyone in the city has everything they need in a 15-minute radius so that they would voluntarily walk or bus or ride a bicycle to anything they need. And and this is just people like Glenn Beck and crazies like Jordan Peterson talking about Agenda 21 that's got all these people thinking that there's some global conspiracy to control your lives and all of this. And it's just crazy talk. This is all just city planning to make cities more efficient and all of that. That's it. That is it. And then you get to the last 20%. And and, and thankfully, like, like I kept reading because, you know, I, I, I know uh, how conspiracy theories can take hold and grow. Uh, even though I love me a good conspiracy theory, I am very, very skeptical of them. When I see some type of outlandish headline, I always try to like think, well, what's the least outrageous information that could be in this article that could generate a preposterous headline like that? So when somebody comes to me with some crazy theory, I'm usually the one that tries to poke some holes into it, unless I'm the one coming up with the theory. So this explanation of this stuff, that it's just city planning and that there's no nefarious aspects of this and and it's all just voluntary and making sure that there's a pharmacy, you know, 15 minutes away from everybody was like a fine enough justification for me. But like I said, I kept reading the article. So this is from that same Slate article. I'm going to start reading directly from it. It says, in Oxford, the, uh, the urbanist ambitions are more serious. Next year, the city plans to implement a souped-up toll network on major roads. But it's not to get cars out of the city core, which has had hefty congestion charge since February. Instead, the city's six new traffic filters will limit daytime car travel between Oxford's neighborhoods, which stretch from the medieval center to its ring roads like slices, uh, like slices of pizza. There are usually exceptions for buses, taxis, or there's usual exceptions for buses, taxis, emergency services, people with disabilities, freight, and so forth. But other drivers will face camera-generated 70-pound fines for motoring across town on local streets. The intention is to unstick the jams that slow the city's major streets to five miles an hour in the mornings by diverting traffic to the ring roads and encouraging residents to use alternative transportations. Oxfordians, Oxfordians will not, in fact, be banned from visiting their mothers, as conservative provocateur Katie Hopkins suggested last month. They can take the bus or ride a bike. 
you can you can drive all you want for free so long as you use the city's ring roads to cross towns. You could also drive through traffic filters at 7 p.m. And locals are entitled to 100 free driving days per year. So, so Chris, I see you're rolling your eyes. Don't you feel reassured by this? What do you not think? A, not even close to it. Donnie, I think there's a lot going on with this smart city, uh, you know, idea here. I think, first of all, cities are dying. And I think the leftists know it. And the leftists love cities because cities in and of themselves are make it easier to control people because they're densely populated. You can control people when they're densely populated more than when they're spread out in this sprawling suburb or exurb. So I think that uh, and actually, you know, I went down to the city last night and uh, I don't go very often to Chicago. That's why I moved away, you know, almost as far as possible, you know, really. Be uh, and, and and once again, I could just I, I could see all the abandoned uh, businesses, you know, the, the streets were empty. It was just it, it's somewhat dystopian. So I think that what they're trying to do is they're trying to rebrand cities because they know that Americans in particular are moving away from cities and the pandemic and people working from home have just accelerated that trend. So I think that they are very worried about that. I see a lot of stuff about offices, uh, you know, these giant office buildings that just lay empty, uh, you know, restaurants, especially like, you know, like the old bustling like lunch places in downtown New York City and Chicago. They are, you know, just just come just dead. So I think that what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, uh oh, how can we get people back into the cities? And they're trying to do it through the oh, this is gonna be a smart city. It's gonna be so great. It's just gonna right. be so fun, and everything's gonna be like, you know, well, fifteen minutes, and it's gonna be, you know, like a, a like a new little like, utopia. Uh, no way. Of course, we all know that that's not gonna happen. No way can they micromanage cities to such a degree that they can actually make sure that within certain blocks there are certain numbers of pharmacies and bakeries and grocery stores sure. and whatever people need you know you know what works people when they go places they you know frequent them and then and then that that's the market saying that hey this business is offering something that the people want and the people are going there on their own volition rather than these you know these architects and designers and these micromanagers who are saying we know with the kind of you know stores that you're going to be needed for these people and this is it, it is so crazy these yeah, people just they, they're they're insatiable like lust to want to control and micromanage people whether it's you know where they drive or where they walk just give me a break let people right. just live yeah, live and know, let live so so when this when this like topic was was uh, um sent to me right it was just like hey this might be of interest to you i thought I thought, you know, that first 80% of that article that I was reading, that this is just central, uh, this is just city planning, nothing more than that. There's no enforcement. It's just, you know, for just the idea, like I said, of a, 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 everyone having a pharmacy within 15 minutes. I, I truly thought that was going to be it. And all of these articles, when you look this up and it's all this like debunking all of this and fact checking this and that, you you mentioned to me that you looked this up in the first three oh, pages. Oh, I Googled of, it and the first three pages were all about how right. great and wonderful these are and how anyone who, uh, you know, is against them is a, you know, QAnon nutcase, right, which right. is totally not true. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and like, so I, like, that's where my mind immediately went. And I was still going to come on the show and talk about this and say, well, can you really blame these people for being skeptical of this? Like, we just spent years of our lives living through COVID restrictions and different mandates and all of these arbitrary rules to, to you know, combat, uh, um, you know, COVID without any actual testing to see if it's going to be effective in any way. So because now that we're getting this and this is all being in the context of trying to limit uh, carbon emissions from cars, unnecessary, you know, carbon emissions from cars, like why would you why wouldn't you be skeptical of this? So like I was going to defend these protesters even before I found out that there was enforcement mechanisms and there was uh, filter systems and uh, uh, cameras that are going to be installed and fines for if you break these restrictions. Like I was still going to defend that before all I, I knew about all of that. And now that all of that is going to be part of this plan, it's like, I, I think there should be even more protests over this. Like this oh, is totally. insane. The well, framework is here. It could so easily become more restrictive and more punitive. And this entire thing is set up as a deterrent, right? So they're trying to deter certain actions. Those actions being driving more than those people in charge think you should. So to get the effects uh, uh, to make sure that 
is a deterrent. They have to put in a punishment. That's that 70 pound fine. But if that, that deterrent isn't achieved, then what's their option? They have to increase the punishment. So the framework is here. Like this is this, this is completely justified to protest. And those three pages of debunking this garbage that is throw it in the crapper. That is ridiculous. Okay, so I read a really good reason uh, article about this. So I'm not going to claim I'm not going to take credit for, you know, this argument because this is, you know, what the author in the article wrote and what and I completely agree with him. And uh, okay, first of all, European cities and American cities are fundamentally different. I've been to Europe a couple of times. My mom grew up there. So I understand that European cities are much more intimate. They're much smaller. Uh, they're much more condensed. American cities by nature are very different. We have very different zoning laws. We tend to put industry in one place, residential stuff in another place, shopping in one place. And that we do that for a reason so that people, you know, can can uh, get in their car and go to the, you know, you know, quote, like suburban mall and, you know, get everything that they need. And in, in cities, that just doesn't work. You're not it's just it's not feasible. The entire point of why uh, after industrialization, the suburbs took such hold is because people realized, OK, the city is where I go and work, but I don't necessarily want to live there. It's big. It's dirty. It's kind of, you know, it's it, 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 it's, uh, you know, claustrophobic for some people. You can't have a lawn. You can't, you know, like, go, you know, you. You can't live a, uh, a, a a life of mobility and freedom in a city, really. It's just right. it's, it's they're not really compatible. The suburbs, by def by definition, are the complete opposite. And that's really why so many people in America live in the suburbs, but work in the city. And like I said earlier, I think that one of the things that's happening is we are seeing the decline of the American city happening right in front of our eyes with the crime and the violence. And, you know, just like all and, and, and you know, this the cities are totally bankrupt. Uh, right. they, they can't, ha you know, afford uh, social services anymore. So what do the uh, centralized, you know, uh, cent the people who love central planning want to do? Let's push everybody back into these cities. But let's do it under the guise that everything's right. going to be in like, a, you know, within a block radius and you'll never have to leave your one block radius. Uh, yeah, no, that, that's just that's just not going to fly. And it's not feasible because how do you know that in that one block radius they're going to have, I don't know, like a golf shop that I might like to go to? Uh, how are you? It's like, yeah, and, you've, and also, you've got, a, you've got a restaurant in your quadrant. Don't go to the yeah, other. You have one Indian restaurant. restaurant. <laughs> you must go there. Okay, yeah, whatever. But Donnie, this also is 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 not even taking into account uh, the fact that you know Amazon.com and all these uh, you know uh, online uh, merchandising places have made it so that you don't need a brick and mortar store sure. within walking distance, yeah. and that's one of the great things about you know e-commerce. So they're actually like, you know, like sticking it to e-commerce at the same time saying, no, we want to go backwards when actually every little every little like, you know, town center or, you know, like every like little, uh, you know, city neighborhood had, you know, like the drugstore and the in, in the pharmacy. It's just not feasible. I mean, come on, give no, me a break. This, this is insane. And, and that <laughs> suggestion that's like, oh, no, you're not restricted from, you know, visiting your 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 mom or your whatever. Just ride a bus. Just take a bike. You know, it's just like that that crazy elitist yeah. attitude that we've talked about on this podcast a million times where it's like, just, oh, gas prices are $7? Just buy an electric vehicle. It's ridiculous. Uh, there is well, a and, comment. And, 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 and just real quick, not to mention the fact that public transportation in the city of Chicago is so dangerous. <laughs> I wouldn't want to go, you know, anywhere near the red line or the purple <laughs> line these days. But they're telling us, no, get rid of your car so you can, you know, go go in, you know, into the, uh, you know, on the L where, you know, you might get stabbed by a homeless man who is, you know, high on, uh, you know, uh, methamphetamines so it's like right wow. right right there's a comment here i think i just lost it. oh no here it is from uh christine saying those covid restrictions were a test it largely worked so here you go and we i've been saying this for a while now that i think that a lot of the things that were uh that that took place under the guise of uh covid was just a trial run for the same type of stuff that they're going to try to do with climate change absolutely and, and, and what was what was the term uh, for people that were allowed to go to work, uh, they they had certain jobs that were like um, essential workers. Ascent, was that what? It was? Yeah, non-essential had to stay home, right? Mm -hmm. And we had seen that already with uh, different energy shortages. I think in e either parts of the United States or maybe some European countries, where they had to uh, ration the energy that was available to essential. Uh, uh, industries and all of that. So it's mm -hmm. like we're already starting to see the echoes of that. So yeah, Christine, I, I love that comment. Oh, but and, and 
Well, it's so funny that you bring that up because I was uh, reading an article today that actually uh, some European countries are thinking about doing World War style, World War II style rationing just okay. to make sure that that uh, they aren't, you know, uh, consuming too much because sure. of climate, of course. Of course, of course. Uh, so we've got like a little over five minutes here, but I do want to talk about the, the last thing that's addressed in our thumbnail for this video, which is geoengineering. So this is a topic that we have touched on on this podcast once or twice, mostly just for a lark. But I think more recently, this is starting to get a little bit more traction in the kind of the serious realm of things, not just kind of the crackpot. Hey, what if we what if we blanketed Antarctica with a bunch of rubber pellets that would uh, you know absorb heat or something like that or or refract heat or something like this seemingly is getting a little bit more play. And I I uh, attribute this more attention uh, to two different things. And I'm just going to breeze right through them just for the sake of time. <clears throat> one of them was a article that was in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, that one was titled, Emission Cuts Will Fail to Stop Climate Change. Uh, what do we do then? And in it, the article talks about like an expert in the field and his complete apathy that any meaningful action uh, will will take will be taken place at a at a legislative level to combat climate change, and even if we do, it'll probably be meaningless. So what do we do now? He says, uh, if the projections are true, and I think they are, I think we're already screwed. He said, if we stop all human done CO two emissions today, climate models suggest the Earth's climate will continue to get warmer. Uh, it would keep going for almost a hundred years. It would take 145 years before it eventually went down to the same temperature it is today. And that's just the physics of the problem. So I don't I don't think he has any any thoughts that uh, the right and the left are going to finally get together and pass some comprehensive piece of legislation that somehow also affects China and India and stops all of their CO2 emissions because he says all human CO2 emissions there. So what is his suggestion? His suggestion is geoengineering. And he talks about a handful of potential solutions. I'm just going to ram through some of these. It says the simplest solar radiation management scheme, he says, is to, quote, emit particles in the stratosphere to mimic uh, a, a volcanic eruption that's referenced earlier. We invented a particularly elegant way to do this with balloons and a pipe in the sky. There's also marine cloud brightening is another solar-related intervention. The idea is to increase the number and size of low clouds that form over the oceans so that more incoming sunlight bounces off that and back into space instead of being absorbed by the oceans and warming them. And he also talks about another idea of draining energy from hurricanes. He says, quote, not a climate intervention per se, but a way to deal with some of the most intense cyclone storms that some models project are likely to occur in a warmer world. Low cost floating tubes would harness wave action to increase the mix mixing of the ocean's warm top layer and the source of the heat that powers hurricane with deeper, cool water. So this this was the one that kind of got the most attention was this Wall Street Journal article. But there was also uh, another article, another story that was published in a number of different publications in various forms, including uh, Time magazine, where they basically talked about uh, a startup company where they wanted to use high altitude balloons to drop sulfur oxide into the atmosphere that would basically oh, that's what china was doing <laughs> <laughs> right yeah yeah they tried a trial run but they all got shot down by some yeah, right. not sure what that was those f-22s yeah oh wait but yeah. tiny did you say pipe in the sky or did you mean pie in the sky earlier I'm just <laughs> yeah that, that's that's pretty good but i'm so um there there was so when you and i talked about this as a potential topic uh earlier in the week um, I think both of us had like a very, I don't know about this kind of uh, outlook on this, right? But there is a there's one part towards the end of this article that actually got me a little bit on board with what this guy had to say. And, uh -oh. and people that are commenting, let me know what you think about any of this. Is this something that you would have any any like uh, interest in in even humoring this these ideas of geoengineering? But this guy uh, says, uh, geoengineering would appear to be an application of science par excellence, but along with the activists who, quote, don't want a technical solution to climate change, he says there's a second set of people who may not have the ideology, but have a more real politics sort of view. 
This group, which comprises most Western governments, want people to shut up about interventions. He likens this approach to the little engine that could a children's story about a small blue engine that pulled uh, an entire train over a hill inch by inch through with sheer forces of will. But here's the, the, the very interesting part. He says, quote, opponents worry that once you have geoengineering, people won't make sacrifices to cut emissions. They want the sword of Damocles hanging over humanity as a means to force us to follow their ideology. So this, for those constant yeah. listeners, is very similar to a, a thing that I always bring up in context of Michael Schellenberger, where he basically says that they don't want nuclear energy because they know it'll be uh, so uh, effective uh, in achieving the goals that they want to such an extent that they won't have the justification to control our lives with things like 15 minute cities or ESG or any number of different, uh, you know, uh, things that are designed to control you under the justification of climate change. If, if this cloud seeding thing or whatever it was, was actually proven to be completely successful and it undid all of the potential climate change that we're going to be, you know, suffering through in the next, you know, handful of decades. And it was just that easy. Then what, what are all these, uh, central, you know, central planning, well, they wouldn't declare victories. <laughs> what would they, they would find would a new do? crisis? Obviously they would, they would bounce to a new crisis, but Donnie, you know what? Until unless and until they can actually clean up the train derailment in East Pal uh, Palestine, Ohio. I'm just not going to take them seriously. Palestine, anymore. Palestine, right. Ohio. Excuse Jim me. Jim is I'm, so mad watching the podcast. But I'm just, I, I'm just not going to take them seriously anymore because that is an actual environmental disaster in which you know people are getting very sick, and you know what? They just don't care about that, but they just keep pushing this global warming BS, you know, down our throat. American yeah. people, I think, have can see through this. Yeah, I mean, so. it, it's it's an interesting thing, and, and it's one of these articles that I have linked in the show notes talks about how, like, the cost of this would be, like, you know, uh, like $2 billion a year or something like that, which sounds insanely expensive, but in the context of all of the other money that's, you know, put forth for all these climate change things or the, the, the cost alone of the Green New Deal or anything, it's, like, a tiny, tiny chunk. Oh, in fact... Two billion dollars is probably raised by like the, you know, Sierra Club and all of these things just for uh, trying to stoke fear about climate change on a yearly basis. So just, just to put that, that in that. The, right. But ahead. just to put that into context, we sent 116 billion to, to Ukraine in the past year. <laughs> right, right, it's right. like two billion to drop in the bucket. Are you kidding me? Now, <laughs> of course. Like, so I especially after reading that guy's like that, that last comment where he just has this disdain for these like wannabe ruling elite types that want this threat of climate change there forever. So that they could justify all of their central planning dreams and controlling the population, all of that. After I read that, I was like, all right, this guy's prying into my heart a little bit. Maybe I'll hear him out when it comes to some of this climate change, uh, geoengineering stuff. Now, granted, I am extremely skeptical, as should everybody when it comes to this, because there are some massive potential unintended consequences that could result mm -hmm. with geoengineering the planet. Well, Don uh, and, and it, well, real quickly, one of mm -hmm. one of the articles that I have outlined some of those things. I think it's the CNN one. And they talk about how, you know, if some of this stuff could um, shift weather patterns and cause a, 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 a monsoon uh, in, a, in a certain part of the world at a different at, at the wrong point in time that causes crop production or uh, uh, failures of crop production or disruptions and all of that, or that this would have to require coordination across all countries and whether or not some countries want to initiate this part of the plan and other countries don't want that part of the plan. They want a different part of the plan. Like all of that stuff would come hand in hand with a plan like this. Um, plus just the, uh, just kind of the ego of us being able to be like, oh yeah, we're just going to change the entire world to, you know, you beat me to it. I was going to say the, the, the gall of these people to think that they can control the weather of all things, the more, the most complex system on earth, right? They think they can control the economy, which is, you know, just so complex. We can't even fathom like all the millions and millions of, you know, minute transactions that occur. They think that they can control the weather. Give yeah, you know, so, so if people, <laughs> if, if this, I can't take them seriously and we're already running long, which is hilarious because it's just us two. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, if, if this starts getting traction and if there are like movements, legitimate movements to push forward with some of these geoengineering things, um, 
I will probably cover them in the same way that I cover any of the other terrible solutions when it comes to electric transitioning our entire fleet of vehicles to electric vehicles or trying to get the entire country to run on wind and solar. I will I will take the same skeptical approach uh, to these geoengineering plans that I do to those things because those concerns need to be addressed. If 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 everyone's like, oh yep, geoengineering, no questions asked, let's do it. And then we're all caught off guard when some unintended consequences bashes us uh, across the face, you know, without us expecting it. That can all be tamped down by a conversation like this and exploring all the what ifs so that we do cross all of our T's and dot our I's if we ever do journey down a path like this. So, like I said, leave a comment. Let me know what you think when it comes to some of these geoengineering plans. Is it all just a complete farce? Is it all just like a money laundering scheme? It's you know, a these like fake startups. It's a solution in search of a problem that doesn't exist because it, you know, it, it, there's lots of money to be made. One of the reasons why, and Donnie, you know, I've talked about this like ad nauseum, is how come they just don't go all in on nuclear? How come they just don't say, you know, nuclear power is is a clean energy. It's renewable. Right. It's sustainable. We've mastered it, and 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 say, okay, fine, we will. Um, use that as our bridge, you know, to renewables, right? They don't do that because there's not millions and millions and millions of dollars to be made in the nuclear industry. Like there is in these crazy, you know, insane uh, yeah, global and, warming schemes that they just keep coming up with. And the last thing I'll say, and this will tie it back off to the first thing we started talking about on this podcast is that uh, this is all, this entire conversation about geoengineering has, is basically taking for granted just like the de you know the debate about how serious of a threat climate change is and you know is it really an existential threat is it really as dire as you know some of these people like Al Gore are making out to be um you know this whole conversation was kind of to the side of that um but that conversation is happening right now uh, or at mm -hmm. least it's starting tonight at the 15th International Conference on Climate Change happening in Orlando Florida like I said starts tonight Friday and Saturday all day long, live streaming all the different panels and all of that. So if you want to hear that portion of the conversation, you just have to find a, a good panel uh, with some good speakers talking about that. Chris Talgo, uh, is there any last things you want to get off your chest before I start wrapping it up today? No, I think we covered everything. I feel like yeah. I really, you know, got a lot off my chest too. <laughs> that's, that's very good. That's right. fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for tuning in to this episode of the In the Tank podcast. I want to thank you all for joining us. If you are an audio only listener catching this on a Friday, like I said, you could join us every week, day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time where we're streaming on Facebook and YouTube and Rumble and Twitter. And you can join the conversation through your comments and questions uh, in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Also, if you would be so kind, you could hit that like button, share this content, subscribe if you haven't already, or just leave a comment under this video. All help us break through those big tech algorithms and prevent content like this from being shown to more people. And if you are an audio only listener and you haven't done so already, if you leave a, uh, a review for us on iTunes, that helps us greatly for the audio component of this podcast. But um, that's going to pretty much do it for us. Chris, is there any, is there any, uh, anything you want to pitch today? No, just go to heartland.org and uh, go to stoppingsocialism.com. Got some new stuff up there. Pretty cool. Fantastic. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week.